Now with the virtual world, we're actually able to engage with scientists from different parts of the world and then connect with their networks. There has become sort of broad recognition that we have a responsibility in higher education to provide our PhD students with a broader set of skills and competencies. That can be another way of getting information that you might not know. You're listening to Vitamin PhD, a podcast from Boston University delivering career narratives and know-how to supplement your doctoral studies. Welcome to Vitamin PhD. Today, my co-host Rohan and I are talking about platforms of communication. We are joined by Tara Miller, a biology PhD candidate at Boston University, and Dr. Lorena Luna, the education designer and communication specialist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, or NCAR, as we'll refer to it in this episode. Before we get started today, we thought we should ask Lorena and Tara to share what two apps on their phone they could not live without. So hi, my name is Jess and I'm a fourth year PhD student in Earth and Environment at BU. Um, and I study clean energy transition in cities and towns across Massachusetts. And if there were two apps that I had to keep on my phone, it would probably be Instagram and my, my Outlook, my email. I check that constantly. <laughs> I'm Rohan. I am a second year PhD student in biomedical engineering, working on lung cancer mechanics. And uh, if there were only two apps that I could have left on my phone, it would be Slack because I prefer Slack to email and Safari or what a, a web browser, because with my web browser, I can access anything, including YouTube. So I can binge my shows <laughs> if I still want. That's great. <laughs> Get a little bit of everything. That almost feels like the wishing for more wishes kind of question of, of the app question. <laughs> Hi everyone, I'm Tara Miller. I'm a third year PhD student in biology at Boston University. I study how climate change is impacting plant and animal ecosystems. Um, I would pick my podcast app, but I'm not just saying that because we're on a podcast. I obsessively listen to podcasts. And I think just that one, I would be very happy to not be bugged by email and everything else on my phone. Hi, thank you for having me. My name is Lorena Medina Luna, and I work at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado but currently working from home for the past year from 2020 to 2021. And I do science communication. I am an education designer. I lead lectures and events um, for the general public. So getting scientists to speak with um, audiences of different levels. And I got my degree from University of Michigan in geophysics. And now that was six years ago, which is mind-boggling. But if I had two apps on my phone, currently they would be my email to connect with the outside world and this one app called Baby Center because I'm expecting a baby and I wouldn't know what to do if I didn't have informational videos. Congratulations. Thanks. And best of luck. (laughs) That's incredible. Congratulations. Speaking of 2020s, one of the things that we had been thinking about that could be kind of interesting is just different platforms that have emerged as ways to communicate. I know 
obviously Zoom is a huge one that we weren't really using before the pandemic hit, but there's a lot of other, I think, really useful tools that have started emerging as platforms for communication, research, and science communication. Um, so we we kind of love to maybe dive in a little bit just into like what your experiences with different platforms of communication have been, maybe how you define a platform for communication and what makes one better than the other or more successful than another. I know I've been using a lot of um, Instagram. I think Instagram is kind of a fun, very casual and kind of accessible everyday type way to share different facts and um, interesting pictures. It's kind of unique, I guess, in that it's more visual than text-based. I don't know. It's it, it was something that I was playing around with last summer just to kind of share some of the research I do in cities and climate change in cities and exploring how to use more of a social media based platform as a way to share science but I don't know just a lot of like space for creative thinking I, I think in terms of trying to manage research and science communication remotely yes that's really cool I like your point about the visual nature of Instagram I think that can be a really powerful tool for scientists especially as we can get bogged down in jargon and how do you explain X, Y, or Z um, and giving people, especially if you're just trying to reach a general audience, make sure to look at a figure, a diagram that can, I think, be a, a better way to, to communicate different scientific concepts to folks. Also, Lorena, I just noticed you have a baby Yoda on your wall. <laughs> That's so amazing. I'm not very much at all on social media, which frankly is probably a failing on my part as, as we try to communicate and reach people. I find I like presentations and talking to folks in person. So in terms of the pandemic, I think the different video platforms have been something I've gravitated towards using Zoom or Skype. Uh, I, I did some Skype a scientist sessions, which is this platform of connecting scientists with teachers. And especially during the pandemic, I think it's been really useful for a lot of parents who are suddenly homeschooling or teachers on virtual platforms trying to figure out how they can bring in different science concepts. So that was a neat way to, to connect with folks and see what they needed, what they wanted to learn, and also what education is looking like during the pandemic. I know that's been really challenging for a lot of people. And I, I think there's a lot that's happened um, for NCAR, at least we went more virtual than anything. And while we did have our events webcast when they were in person, we'd have more people tuning in in person from the local area from Boulder, Denver Metro. But one of the things we've done now is go on to a platform called Slido. So kind of having a uh, a webinar still and we can't see everybody which is unfortunate but we get to see their responses to active polls or questions um, just uh, typing it out um, so that's been interesting to see the, the difference in how scientists and how I present to myself on a camera compared to when we have seen the reactions of people's faces um, so I think that's kind of the difference. And I know that there's been a lot of 
a there's been a big learning curve in what are the good platforms to use or what are different ways to increase accessibility in a virtual world to not leave people out of the conversation. Um, but informally, I make more of an effort to be on social media, specifically on Twitter. It'll get more of the, the academics. Um, and then you have Facebook, which could be more for families. And then you have Instagram, who could be like a lot different of a population. So thinking about different platforms for different audiences and what is the messages that you're trying to convey. I think that's been more critically in my mind. I, I will post about events on Instagram, but mostly it's the, the fun aspects of the event. And then Twitter is more of the advertisement and trying to get people into this type of talking about events. And then Facebook, it's kind of letting my family know what I'm doing. And one time we had an event for um, discoveries of a field campaign called Relampago, and it was a Spanish event. But my mom called and she's like, what happened in Denver? Is there a lightning storm? I was like, no, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's an event. It was a field campaign called Relampago, but the scientist is actually talking about hydrology. So I think that's um, where these conversations start and it's the challenges of um, how do we communicate with audiences who maybe traditionally don't follow the science, um, especially in a different language. Um, so I think that's been an interesting part of this pandemic is, is learning how people perceive the type of work that we do. But I think different platforms for different audiences and making sure you connect with the different audiences in the ways that they prefer. That brings us to a good uh, point there. Does one start off with a defined target audience or is it good to kind of cast a broad net, see who catches and then start tailoring your uh, content towards more specific audiences that you see are engaging more with you? I think it kind of starts with what types of events are you, are you doing? So for me, like we'll have like events for like if we do, for example, science lectures, they're sometimes catered to a general, they're always catered to a general public, but sometimes more specific to university or college students or people who are in the field. There are some events that we plan for kids, so a kids science show. So I think um, for me, starting up with what is the the target audience that we want to reach by producing an event? And then what are the platforms where we can reach the most of that target audience? But I think it's also what are people looking for, especially with the pandemic, you know, everybody was at home. So we had to find ways to engage families and their kids. So I know the UCAR SIAD program has been doing um, kind of meet the experts events, where it was more for um, elementary to high school students. Whereas, you know, Explorer series that we host can be from 12 years old and older, but it's been primarily audiences of college to retired audiences. So people who have done maybe the type of work that is being presented and they wanna find out what's happening now. Um, and then just college students who are interested in how did you get to where you are and how can I get there too? Um, so I think that it's, it's a twofold thing. It's what do people, what are people in need of 
So based on what soci- what's happening in society. So we try to make content relevant to the time of year. So in the summer, we have events about wildfires because it's impacting people. Whereas we can have things about the Arctic in the winter. But yeah, I think it's, it's who, what are, what is society in need of? What are the types of programs that we want to engage people in? So making the program and then what are the platforms that will let us reach and um, the connections that we have, the networks that we have to, to help us reach those audiences. So how have things changed now? If we use everything we know today and we had to go back and tell our 2020 selves, you know, back in 2020 March, uh, you know, how, what would you do differently back then? Because we, we recognize that we suddenly had to jump to a lot more virtual communication, losing out the uh, face-to-face in-person communication stuff. So what would, uh, how, how do we go back to that, uh, Tara? such a huge part of that has been the accessibility portion as everything went virtual and realizing oh there are people who don't have computers or don't have broadband aren't able to engage if their classroom is going virtual or if educational programs that they they would like to attend or engage in are, are virtual so going back it seems like we could have really used better planning in in getting especially kids internet and laptops and things like that um, to make sure that virtual infrastructure is, is available for people. Yeah, I think that question of accessibility is really interesting. I had a couple of experiences early on where I spoke on a Zoom panel for a nonprofit in Boston and it seemed like we had more of an audience than we would have had that event been in person. Um, I think people felt it was less effort to tune in, given that, of course, they had, you know, access to internet and such. Um, So I think there's kind of two ends of the spectrum in terms of how events have changed and communication has changed. Yeah, I can jump in on that. Um, Actually, you know, kind of pulling from some research, I went to an interesting discussion of um, there's a BU researcher who works on housing justice issues. And I think it was, I'm forgetting what city, it might have been the mayor of Framingham was on the call. And so the researcher was talking about a lot of issues with the lack of housing and, you know, rent prices in Boston and how, you know, how are we engaging people in these processes of zoning and development Uh, And her survey research had shown that um, very disproportionately and largely the people who engage in the hearings and governmental processes around those kinds of regulations are overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly homeowners, um, overwhelmingly older. um, And they were also curious, would that change as things went virtual? Did it make things more accessible for a broader and more diverse audience? And they found that no, it didn't which was surprising to me, you'd think that that might help with accessibility. And the mayor of maybe Framingham um, was, was saying part of that could be timing. If you're holding um, a, you know, a meeting at 6 p.m., 7 p.m. on a weeknight, parents might be busy, they have to make dinner, they have to take care of their kids, that might be the only family time they have. So the timing of the meetings matters also just 
how you're getting that information out to people. If people already didn't know about the hearing, they might not suddenly know and be able to engage just because it's gone virtual. So I think a lot of these are questions that, that folks are grappling with. It's going virtual doesn't automatically make things accessible and bring in more people. So we need to be a little more deliberate in how we're getting information to people who might want to be involved and in how we're planning timing and accessibility for folks if we're actually trying to, to reach a broader audience. One of the things that I had been hesitant about was doing events in Spanish, because while Spanish is my first language, I learned everything in English growing up. So I feel like I'm kind of slower in my speech. So I have to practice it with a scientist who speaks Spanish. But one thing that we have been able to do because of the pandemic is um, connect with scientists from Argentina to be our speakers. So because we used to do them in person, we had to look for local scientists to give, come and give talks. But now with the virtual, virtual world, we're actually able to, to engage with scientists from different parts of the world, specifically for me to talk with them in Spanish and then connect with their networks, which has been great. See, that, that brings you to something that uh, Jess and I were discussing. Is this, not, is this now here to stay, this ability to reach people in different time zones and bring them to events in different places without really having to incur heavy costs, uh, it affecting someone's schedule uh, intensely, but someone can actually go out and do the kind of outreach they want to do by just hopping onto Zoom or any uh, virtual connection platform. Is that something that uh, we see going moving forward? It's going to be part of our reality and toolbox for outreach. I, I think it's tricky, though. Um, so if we do events at 10 in the morning that are in Spanish, we get to reach audiences in the evening at different parts of the world that speak Spanish. But, you know, we had virtual conference in December, um, the AGU, American Geophysical Union, and we have people connecting from all over the world. And some people were giving their presentations at two in the morning. So I think it's also the type of event and um, like realizing who are the participants that we want for these events and being cognizant of whatever the times are that we post our event, like who are we reaching and making sure that they it can meet their schedule. Um, so I think the virtual world is definitely going to be around for a while, even if we start doing in-person events, it'll be definitely important to continue reaching a large number of audiences that, you know, would incur travel expenses that they wouldn't have otherwise, um, things like that. Um, but Tara, I don't know if you have some thoughts on that too. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea of who you can connect to, how easy or difficult that is. I'm thinking particu particularly in regards to seminar series, there's been a lot of discussion around diversity of speakers, who you bring in. And it's it has a lot of implications in the scientific community because it's, it's who students see reflected as mentors, as potential people they could work with, or just this reflection of who is in the field. Can you see yourself in the field doing this kind of work? Um, it's building collaborations. It's giving opportunities for those scientists who are coming, coming in to build their CV and build their networks. So I had this perhaps naive impression that with everything going virtual, suddenly our seminar series would get so much diverse because we would be able to 
pull from people all over the world, invite anyone. There wouldn't be limitations on cost or geography. And lo and behold, the seminar series that I have seen are so overwhelmingly white um, in, in biology, in biogeosciences. Um, so again, back to this issue of it doesn't automatically solve things. There's obviously a lot deeper work to be done there, who your networks are, who you're reaching out to, who you're inviting. But to me, that represents such a big opportunity that moving forward, I think there's a lot of conversation about keeping some virtual components. And it's an opportunity to bring in more people and bring in more voices. Um, and I, I certainly hope we, we push for that more um, and, and don't kind of do the, the easy default of, of just sticking with what we have been doing, which in many cases is overwhelmingly white networks of scientists that we need to be expanding and inviting more people and, and pushing beyond that that standard of what we've been doing, which I think is is not working well and not not serving our, our scientific community. You think that uh, certain platforms uh, push forth the bias? The, the the diversity bias that we have are there are there alternative platforms that are more general and will bring more diversity uh, to an event so are we limited in any way by the platforms of communication we choose vis-a-vis -vis the audience we get that's really interesting i think a lot of that has to do with the power dynamics so for something like a seminar series who's making the decisions, who's inviting people, who's putting forth speaker options. And that's usually more senior faculty um, with perhaps wider scientific networks. And I think you see like a platform like Twitter strikes me as a place where more people and more diverse scientists are able to get their work out and able to, to reach more people and able to create their own communities within that because it's not as hierarchical. There's not, there's not a, a dean or a department head who you, you necessarily have to go through to get things approved. It's, it's a little more free for all. And I think those kinds of structures can, can allow more people to connect and communicate. So I was just going to ask about experiences with creative communication. I think a piece of what we were trying to explore here as well that we've kind of danced around a little bit is just different creative ways to communicate that maybe is a little bit less traditional. And I'd love to hear if you both have some example of that. Yeah, I think I'm very drawn to a lot of artistic things in terms of communication. And that can take a lot of different forms. Um, in one of my past jobs, I worked with advocacy and education in a wildlife nonprofit. And one project I did was working with uh, a classroom in Northern New York to write essays about the Arctic Wildlife Refuge, um, along with uh, an exhibit from a photographer who'd, who'd gone there and taken a lot of pictures so that students were able to to pair their expression of why this area was important, why the people there were important, why the wildlife were important, uh, along with these images. And I think it was really powerful, both giving kids the opportunity to express themselves and to, to try a new thing in this, this pairing of, of words and art, as well as 
putting this together as an exhibit for the community to be able to go in an art show and see both what the images and words of kids in the community and see what that looked like and how that would was different and had a different impact than say me showing up and talking about why why this place was important, why it needed to be protected, what the different components were. I think it it speaks in a different way, that that kind of of connection of, of different media. And so I think that kind of goes into storytelling. I like how Tara, you were saying it was it was the artistic aspect of it. And I think science has a space for storytelling and art. And I think that's the connecting. How do we connect with the audience of what it is that we're trying to research or understand? And for, for NCAR, we did uh, in collaboration with UCAR Syed and working with scientists on ways to create a traveling climate exhibit that will go to different communities, libraries, and open spaces for people who wouldn't traditionally have this type of um, exhibit available to them to kind of bring that aspect of these are the stories of how our changing climate is impacting communities across the United States. And then having an opportunity to do some interactive um, exhibits or kind of learning as you are using tactile senses to understand the concepts that are being taught. And then having this talk backboard where the community can then answer questions. Um, how is your community working to change the climate towards positive impacts or something? And then kind of like bringing the community together to have these conversations. Lorena, I love that. That idea sounds so cool. And I think that's such a neat emphasis on, on, the, on the community learning. I think so often as scientists, we come in with this hierarchical idea of the scientists being the experts and needing to tell things to the community. And so that's such a neat way to set up a scientific learning experience that's really based around the community and more catalyzing a conversation there and getting people to talk about climate impacts and that the people living there and experiencing that are the experts in that. You don't need someone to come in and tell you like what's happening, like you know it already. And so that's that's such a cool structure to, to really be creating and setting up. That's awesome. Uh, we have, I think, one more question for you that I'll let Jess uh, do and then uh, we'll start wrapping up as well. Yeah, so I, I mentioned this at the beginning, but we kind of wanted you know, all of these episodes to have some type of takeaways or best practices um, that early career scientists, um, early career folks pursuing any type of um, research or any job profession can kind of learn from you both. Um, so I don't know if you maybe have like a quick one or two sentence type synopsis of advice for people looking to start engaging with audiences maybe different than who they normally talk with, um, if they're looking to share their work, their research, kind of what, what some best practices might be and if there are any things to avoid that you've come across. Yeah, so um, I guess some advice I would recommend is don't shy away from the challenges in science communication. Uh, I worked at a museum for, for about a year and a half and I didn't know what I was getting myself into, to be honest, but you, you learn a lot of skills, specifically being flexible with 
change. I love that point of taking on challenges. I think we can learn so much when we're pushing ourselves. And like you said, Lorena, learning new skills and things that we don't necessarily get taught. But if you just go out and start doing it, you're probably going to mess up sometimes and get it wrong. And then you you learn and you figure out what are ways to, to reach people and communicate. So I, I really love your point there. And I'll also, Lorena, both you and Rohan said this already, but to, to lift that up again, I think storytelling is one of the um, biggest tips for, for communication of any sort. But I think in science especially, um, we can make it so dry. It's Especially if you're publishing a manuscript, it's it's the facts, it's the figures, it's the methods, the cut and dry, take the emotion out of it, take the the person and the experience out of it. And I think when you're you're actually trying to communicate to people and get across whether it's facts you're still trying to get across or the meaning or what people can do with that, what it means for them and their community. Stories speak so well to people. So that's probably one of the biggest things of how can you tell a story with, with your science and what you're trying to, to communicate with people. I love that. Thank you both for those pieces of wisdom, but also just for agreeing to chat with us today. Thank you so much both for your time. Yeah, this, this has honestly been super fun. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Vitamin PhD, Platforms of Communications featuring Lorena and Tara. To get the latest episodes of Bitman PhD, be sure to follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us on Twitter at BUVitaminPhD. That is at BUVitaminPhD. We'd love to hear from you, our audience, about what challenges in communication you face or have overcome. And also, what two apps on your phone you couldn't live without? Learn more about our team and send us feedback by emailing us at grad ed at bu.edu. Once again, that's grad ed at bu.edu. Thank you, stay safe, and tune in next time.